Yeah, but Nestle's always come sniffing. It's just the way it is. Well, that's how yeah. he gets work these days. <laughs> <laughs> He's just marking his territory. Is that John Nettles malingering in the bush outside the office? Yes. <laughs> Why is he wheezing? That's very much his style. <laughs> Stinging uh, Nettles. Right, are we going to do this? first time we actually speak in six months is to launch in a foolhardy fashion into our dissection of our least favorite David Bowie album. Anyway, John, how are you? It's been a while. You're looking well in the main. No, I'm, I'm looking dreadful. I, 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 think I've, uh, I, I think I've piled on the pounds. Um, yeah, but your arms have got muscly. What the hell is that about? My arms are now massive. Yeah, it's true. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we're, we probably won't be putting this on YouTube so people won't be able to see. But I just got a load of John's guns. I felt threatened, let me tell you. Yeah, you did. Even on my laptop screen. It's, you know, it's like an alabaster army coming at you, Joe. It's terrifying. Was that not a song by Babylon Zoo? Nice it should choice. have been. He missed a trick there, didn't he? He missed many tricks. I don't know, Joe. I'm, I'm feeling a bit frightened of the world now. I haven't, I haven't really gone out. I haven't been to the city centre in about six months. I really? I haven't have been to a pub or a restaurant. You become uh, all in. Recluse? I am Boo Radley, yeah, at this moment. I mean, literally, I'm, t I, you know, I feel oppressed by my neighbours. Yeah. When they're outside in the gardens, I don't go in the garden. So, uh, they, they say hello or something untenable like that. So do you send Sue out into the world to fetch, I don't know, wine and food? Or do you uh, occasionally forage? I occasionally forage, but there's no wine contact. There's no loving glances. I, I, but I'm also terrified of the world of politics, Joe. And the way the uh, the Americas are sliding into a civil war, and the way as predicted by the Avengers movie. When haven't they been on the money? They've almost never not been on the money. I'm very glad. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very terrifying time, isn't it? And I'm, uh, I'm yeah indoors right now doing a Zoom call about a bad David Bowie album well, with you. What could be more soothing, relaxing, and distracting from the woes of the world than the worst David Bowie album committed to vinyl? Now, is it um, the worst? There was a few surprises for me, but on the whole, I remain convinced that it's the worst David Bowie album ever. John, I'm not saying there aren't surprises on that. No. I'm just not saying <laughs> this, these are some bad... You're surprised that he made this record. You're going to go, what? why did this happen? 
Um, Why is he working with these men? Yeah. Why is he involved in any way with any of the music? What's going on with David? He was in the slipstream of his massive Enormo Dome Let's Dance success. He was tired of being innovative, being arty. He wanted to be a stadium rocker, didn't he? There's some mystery involved in this. There's as much mystery around this as there is, say, in the making of Station to Station. Maybe not quite as romantic. Is there a bit of stag? Hang on. Is a connection? He sound a bit... I think there may be some sort of technical... Um, Do you know what that is? Skidderoo. Do you know what that yeah, is? Man. That's us um, bad-mouthing Bowie over the Super Information Highway, <laughs> which is kind of like his heaven. There's interference. There's yeah, ghosts no, in the machine. The internet, it was, is, is kind of Bowie's techno heaven, isn't it? Oh, that's where no. he resides. That, that, that's where he would have wanted to reside. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, there's something oh, going on there. Oh, okay. I thought you'd frozen. You were just taking yeah, what no. I said. Okay. I, 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 do you want me to guess what you're saying? I don't know. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Yeah. That was just a wee, yeah. a wee bit of a snag. Uh, we'll, we'll get normal. Sir. We're back in the room, are we? We're back in the room. So we, we had some turbulence. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, it came out in 1984, as we said, on the back of Let's Dance. I was reading that apparently mm -hmm. EMI mm -hmm. signed a 17 million pound deal, famously a huge, biggest deal of its time, of its kind at the time. And EMI mm -hmm. were keen to recoup their money. So they ordered him to make another album, which he wasn't too happy about. And hence Blue Jean. Uh, and he didn't have enough material stacked up. Hence all the covers and Iggy collaborations and only two self-penned Bowie songs. The two best songs on the album, as it goes. You say that, yep. there is some confusion here. Because Bowie's gone on that record now, we wonder how much of this is some sort of rear guard action. Yeah. By going, oh, I didn't have any time, and it was, we didn't have the material, I'd just come off the tour, and I don't write on the tour. Carlos Alomar claims that for the first time he'd known him, which was like 11 years, um, he turned up with demos of something like eight of the songs that were on the album. Yeah. So there is a discrepancy there. And then Bowie does go on to talk about how great the demos were, if you heard the demos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and there is a brilliant thing where he, he started to record, I think he started to record um, Loving the Alien, um, some which, Swiss guys. Which is a great There's song, a by the way. Pickup band. Yeah. Who, he, who must have thought this is incredible. I'm like, they're hanging out in Montreux, smoking outside a chalet or something like that. And David Bowie rocks up and goes, hey guys, do you want to start a band with me? Maybe do some jamming? And, <laughs> get in and he starts writing all the songs with them. They're going, yeah, we're in a band with David Bowie. We're the prototype team machine. This is amazing. And then he goes into the studio and fucks them and they go away and they never get anything. Which, you know, I'd love to find out who those guys were and what their thinking was behind them. It's such a weird period, uh, both in, in terms of pop culture, but also for David Bowie. So it's hard to imagine that just a year before he was possibly the biggest pop star on the planet. Mm. And then all of a sudden this, a really hastily cobbled half-assed grand folly. He didn't play anything on it. He barely wrote. He, as you say, he came with demos to the studio in Quebec, yeah. I believe it was recorded. He seemed to interviews at the time to be extremely half-hearted about music in general. Even the bands he was re referencing seemed slightly off. Level 42 were a big favorite of his around that time. I think I Mark think... played on one, one of the songs here. Do you know what? It feels like he played on all of them. <laughs> if he wasn't on, um, what's that really bad one? Oh, hang on. Let me just look it I up. definitely smelled fretless bass towards the end of the album. Yeah, yeah if he's not on Tumble and Twirl, I'll eat my hat. I'll eat my uh, bit of gaffer tape on my thumb. 
it's just I think I, I think nobody realised specifically he didn't realise just exactly how much he hated being famous and how freakish yeah. he found it after being like you know he'd been a cult artist he'd been a failure for about a decade and then he'd been a cult artist for a decade and yeah. then suddenly he was the mainstream and I think he started making really bad choices probably the worst choice he made was coming off doing Let's Dance with um, Noel Rogers and, and taking the same band from his touring band and yeah. putting them in the studio to record a new album with Derek Bramble and yeah. Hugh Padgham. No disrespect to Derek and, and Hugh, yeah. but the one one you want to take from the previous album is Noel Rogers. Yeah. He's the guy. He's the one you're going to do the work with. Yeah. You know, Derek Bramble yeah. from Derek, I mean, Derek Bramble sounds like a, a character actor from Last of the Summer Wine. He really does. I, 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 but but he, apparently he was a big deal in the kind of Brit funk movement, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he really he, doesn't look like a, a character was, from that. Kind of a big deal when it came to the, that kind of blue-eyed soul set. Tony Hadley had him on speed dial, I understand. <laughs> so anyway, Derek Bramble explains how, how he got involved. Um, I don't know how he speaks, so I'll just say it in my own voice and hope for the best. I, probably, I think that's probably for the best, John. He called me, simple as that. He'd just done the Serious Moonlight album. I think he means the Let's Dance album. He'd done that with Niall, and they were looking for a young, hip producer. My name came up. <laughs> Get me Bramble. He came searching for me. David Bowie came searching for him. I just said, hey, do you want to produce this record? I said yes, and that was it. I had no idea. He just came searching for me. <laughs> I thought my manager was actually playing a trick on me. But when it came to pass, wow. he wanted me to really do it. And I went, and I did it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Derek Bramble, 2012. Now, I'm slightly alarmed by, he keeps repeating the fact that Bowie came searching for him. And it doesn't yeah, sound like a good thing. he's been searching for the source of the Nile. Yeah, yeah. Now he found a thicket of brambles. Like the gated drum Terminator. He's relentless. <laughs> <laughs> he was joined in production duties by Hugh Padgham on the other end of the, uh, of the music spectrum. who yeah. just produced Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel. He accepted the lesser role of engineer to work with Bowie. He seemed to put his nose out of joint a wee bit. He's not very kind about the album, in retrospect. He also hated Blue Jean. Will you hear this, John? This is Heath Padgham talking about Blue Jean. They were all really just jams. He sounds remarkably like Derek Bramble, I know. They were all really just jams. David had some riffs on a tape in his head, and the band would jam on them, and we'd make a bit of a song of it. But they were quite raunchy songs. He said raunchy. At one point, David asked me what my least favourite song out of the 11 or 12 was. And I said, Blue Jean, straight off. I, th I thought it was a bit lightweight. And I just said off Alexa. Yeah, that's going to happen. She surprises me at the oddest moments. So I told David my least favorite track was Blue Jean. I thought it was a bit lightweight. I would rather have had demo number two in its place. Demo number two. I prefer demo number two. <laughs> I couldn't yeah, tell I you mean, why he didn't put demo I mean, number two on the album. He actually refers to demo number two as being raunchy. I was having a debate, coincidentally, about the word raunchy last night with my son. What is raunchy actually? Is raunchy what uh, people who are afraid of talking about sex say instead of talking about sex? Yeah, it's like tabloidies for, um, for, for sexy. Yeah. Ooh, bit raunchy. Bit raunchy. Oh, like, you know, yeah. tits and a cock, no, that sort of thing. What's Eli's take on raunchy? Is it something that's in his lexicon? Like a lot of things that I discuss with him, he thinks it plucked from the inner workings of my mind, which are like an explosion in a carry-on movie memorabilia factory as far as he's concerned. <laughs> but uh, apparently, Hugh Padgham preferred demo number two to Blue Jean. And he actually said, 
I would have loved to have had demo number two on the album. Don't change it. Don't change the beat, David. Don't even change the oh. name. Demo, demo number, number two. One. Demo number one was uh, Loving the Aliens. Really? So, yeah. So, I mean, who knows what might have been if demo number two had made the grade. John, you texted me at about, I think it was quite a late hour, just to tell me that you think the other night that Loving the Alien might be the greatest David Bowie single. I don't remember saying that. Oh, I have the text. Those? I have the text. Are you actually now going to read out the text? Just to verify that I'm not yanking your chain. Well, Were okay. you on the wine, perchance? Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> it's been very good of late. Let me see. Elliot Gould, Telly Savalas. I'm just going through your uh, t- messages here. My God, it's quite a treasure trove of obscure references. My, my message is mainly uh, 1970s actors. A wormhole of Duran Duran's success. I don't yeah, know what that's yeah, about. Yeah. Joe Longthorne, Xylophone well, Solo. On, oh, here we go. It was about 4 p.m. yesterday. God, Joe, this fucking record. Then you added about five minutes later. Loving the Alien is one of my fave Bowie songs. Then you emphasized the single version. Because the album mm-hmm. version does go on a bit. Um, well, let's just get in, let's just get stuck into the record. So first yes. up is Loving the Alien. It's a really good single, really good record, really good song, actually about something. Uh, Bowie attempting to actually write. Uh, yeah. um, and it's got a great tune. It's got those, uh, sort of, ha, 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 yeah. that he picks off, um, you know, what's her name? Laurie Anderson? Uh, Laurie Anderson. Or was um, it Philip Glass? Well, he writes it's Philip Glass, but it was Superman. Um, but the single version yeah. shines. Yeah. It's Glorious! It's compact. It's beautiful. It comes out in crazy mental video, which is great. Yeah. Uh, which I think again has uh, Richard Fairbrass in it. It was all over the place in those days. Richard Fairbrass um, from Right Said Fred. Right Said Fred um, appears in in two of his videos. Yeah. Which is strange, with hair. Um, yeah, that was shocking. The album version is murky as fuck, and it's so long. It's got and an extra three minutes tacked on. Things happening. Yeah. This great big horrible shit ass of a guitar solo comes faffing all over the place. Yeah. Whapping like a fish in a boat. Spoffing. And it's a big spoffy guitar just, solo. It's just awful. I can't stand it. And it ruins a perfectly good song. And that basically sets up the entire record. Look at what you could have won. Is what the it's, title I, it, actually, it actually makes up uh, one sixth of the record, which is quite mm. telling about the content, the scant content in the record. I used to love that 80s thing of you have the, the basic song, then you make a 12-inch version or a longer version by tagging yeah. three minutes of instrumental at the end. Hand clap breakdown. I was a big sucker for that stuff. I think I appreciated the bang per buck. You were getting more for your money if you got a seven-minute version of Loving Alien. I'm imagining you going out with a sort of uh, a roll of lino on your arm. Yeah. And Gesso Blaster. Yeah. And, and doing the Caterpillar to the extended hand clap remix of uh, Loving the Alien. Oh, totally, man. When I, when I used to hog a stereo at parties, I always put the 12-inch versions of my favourite 80s songs on and just pissed everybody off, you know? <laughs> they were all excited at the start of Haircut 100, but after the 11th minute of Jangle and Congos, and Congos they were like, no, turn this shit off. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. 
It wasn't the Twelve Inch version of Torch by Soft Cell. Oh Christ, yes, yes. A conversation in French and then ten minutes of trumpet playing. Brilliant. Ten minutes of very rusty trumpet playing. That's not a euphemism either. Yeah, my God. But, but yes, as you say, a very strong opening, a properly written song, and it's a song, one of the few songs that Bowie would go back to from that era and play live. Joe, Joe don't get used to it. That's the last one. Till you it get to Bowie, the... which is very much not the week. Basically, there's two good songs in this record. Yeah. They're both singles, yeah. and they're on either side of the record. And everything old, else. There's is an old adage. There's an old adage in show business, John. Never begin with a showstopper. <laughs> this is exactly, it's just another mistake that he made in the production of Blue Jean. Got rid of Nile Rogers, started with his best song. Yeah. He had nowhere to go. And then where does he go? He goes into lumpy UB40 style reggae. Not even UB40, more kind of Boris Gardner style reggae. Well, that's it. The thing is, I've been listening to this record quite a lot. And uh, genuinely can't listen to the second side for any length of time. I yeah. find it appalling. But actually, when he's doing his sort of weird cod reggae, yeah. because it's not got that horrible, hideous, pageant-gated drum yeah. all over it, and those horrible guitars, I'm, I'm, I'm growing to like it. I'm sort of like this... Hang on a minute. Are you, are you solving David two forays into reggae appear on the, <laughs> the first four songs on his album. Um, and then that, it possibly highlights of the record, really. Yeah. David Bowie's um, forays into reggae. It is literally a raiding party. It's like a Viking raiding party <laughs> onto the shores. <laughs> the shores of Lover's Rock. Um, pillaging, raping and looting with a, with a gated drum and then making yeah. back to the longboat. <laughs> oh, in a Lover's Rock style. But that second um, song is yeah, the first, it's, it's the first Iggy cover, it, isn't it? Also, I mean, yeah, which you wouldn't know, which is interesting. You, you also have to take on board the fact that he's sort of doing, and this whole record, in a way, is like his Joe Longthorne record. Like <laughs> so that's why you mentioned that's why you mentioned Joe Longthorne. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense now, it's right? Like he's doing people all the way through it. So we get to the, I mean, the second, the third one is obvious, but this one he's sort of doing Bob Marley, and he's sort of doing it quite well. But you have to worry about David yeah. Bowie very suddenly taking on a, a sort of you know, West Indian accent. Well, that's the thing about Boy. Boy, Boy laps into that with alarming ease. He, he, he's there's, done it before. A about, I mean, the kinks of the, of the masters of this. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. Him, him is done with more taste. Um, oh, well, that's it. Bramble can get his stuff together. That's the problem, it's John. Looks it's all... It's not as offensive as you think. Yeah, it's all fucking taste. It's just too much taste. It's mm. tasteful. That's it's the thing. It's tasteful than an inch of its life. It could be Robert Palmer. That's the thing. I tell you what, I was in the shower uh, listening to tonight earlier on because I am dedicated to researching for this podcast. Is and, that what you uh, were doing? Like scrubbing yourself down with yeah. wild listening to Because that's I what I feel yeah. like doing afterwards. I literally thought the opening seven minutes of Loving the Alien would get yeah. me through my shower. But I tarried. I tarried with the loofah. And uh, Don't Look Down came on. I've never jumped out of a shower so quickly to reach for the off button. Oh my god! It, it's it's just I just it, it also feels wrong listening to Bowie doing that sort of music, that sort of lascivious accent while you're buck naked in the shower. I don't know why that whole tableau didn't sit comfortably with me. Well, a lascivious accent. What, what do you mean by that, Joe? Well, he, he has a, well, he has a little. He puts a little, shall we say, color into his singing effort there. Um, yeah, he, he's very self-consciously doing Bob Marley the whole way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I don't know if he even knows he's doing it. Maybe he is. Maybe I'm, I'm giving the benefit. We've done it before. There's, there's a song on Black Tie White Noise called "Don't Let Me Down and Down," right. and he lapses into the most cod patois straight off the bats. You know I give my love for you. Oh, I, I, I'm not even going to wait. Yeah, it, it's like what, what the hell's going on? I can almost hear the boot polish on his face <laughs> as he's singing. He, he does have form in this. Boys from that generation who like to play around with accents, and you know, you'd probably do a joke Irish accent if he met me. Those kind of geezers. He's from an era that doesn't really understand that that isn't cool. I think he thinks it's being friendly. Yeah, reggae like it used to be. It's Paul Nicholas. By doing an impression of your voice. So now they're friends. I've reached out to you to mock you. I'm respecting your your culture. We have an empire, remember? Yeah, Yeah, sorry Um, about that. (laughs) Speaking of of incredibly poor impressions, and and keeping with my sort of Karen K, this is his Karen K album, Um, he moves into God Only Knows. Yes, nice. It's the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever heard. It is, A, it's really bad. I mean, it's really badly done. B, he's just, he's doing two things. He's doing Scott Walker, and then he's doing that sort of weird, what Kenneth Williams used to call his snide voice, where where he's very nasally, because that thing, halfway through, where he sounds like he's a kazoo halfway through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a a note he hits. I can't remember which one in the middle of it. You'll know it as soon as you hear it. And we had to rewind it three times to get to get our heads around it. He hits. He goes from this ludicrously low Scott Walker notes to this helium notes, and it's a bomb yeah. note. You know he's reaching too far. My son Eli is a massive Beach Boys fan. He had to leave the room. It was that bad. That song yeah. might be the worst thing Bowie's ever committed to record. I think it is. I genuinely think. I mean, it's not. It's not my least favorite song on the album, um, mainly because it's going for something and feigning to grasp it. But, but it's also. But, it's like it's, it's like taking the rippling wheat field of the original and tarmacking the fucker. You know, he's <laughs> just paved over it with a steamroller. It's all the more painful because it doesn't need to be covered, much in the same way that uh, you don't need to remake. The Equalizer, for example. That's a terrible example. You need to read. I don't know why I went there at all. I don't think there's anything you can't cover. I uh, may not. Sorry, go on. As every bank advert featuring a, a hus- husky voiced girl and the ukulele will attest. But um, it's just right so job. badly done. It's just so ill advised. It's so conventional sounding <laughs> as well. Yeah, you've, yeah. Got, you've got something like God Only Knows, which has these incredible um, pieces of instrumentation placed up against each other and rubbing against each other and making new ideas for what is Delicate interplay, counter harmonies. This, yeah. this has got a little pocket orchestra going on in the background. Dull, it's karaoke. It's what happened in the 80s. If you want to go for emotion, you get the trial and start layering shit on. And it's clear that Hugh Padgham is no mm-hmm. slouch when it comes to Bonging up the multi-track. But he'd done some interesting work, Pageant. And I think, I guess it's that he was pissed off about being the engineer. Is Pageant um, behind the Gator Drum and Phil Collins signs well, Padgham, at the time? Pageant, Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel all claim to have invented the Gator Drums. Now, I went down uh, a bit of a wormhole with this, Joe. Uh-huh. I'm now going to explain to you how the Gator Drums work. Oh, good. 
John, yeah, I know this is a bit you've been looking forward to. Before so you what, continue, John. What do you mean by a gated drum? Well, I'll tell you. Right? One second, John. Before you continue, can we just say this is a new part of the show we call John Explains the Gated Drum. It's, where's the jingle? Are you going to put the jingle Okay. In? John Explains the Gated Drum. That's lovely, actually. Well done. Um, so what a gated drum is really is heavily compressed room ambience and then taking the room ambience and feeding it through a device called a noise gate. So basically what happens is you get an abrupt reverb. Yes. Right? So normally when you hit something yep. in a room and you record that, you get the echo of the room and you get the wave of the... Uh, the the wave travels about the room and it turns to the... Yeah. Here, you're compressing that. So you yeah. get a lot of noise in a very short space. It's like a feedback so, loop. So it makes a big noise. And all the drums in the 80s eventually sounded like this. They sound airless and claustrophobic and ugly and thin. Yeah. And it comes up in um, Peter Gabriel's Melt album, um, where he wanted no signals. So they had to muck around and try and come up with stuff that's going to fit <coughs> out the sound a bit more without any symbols. And yeah. this is what they came up with. Compressed, the compressed sound of the room um, in bite-sized digital chunks. Yeah peppered throughout it but it, you know it was hugely uh hugely big thing in the 80s and it, it, i think the 80s was the era where there was so much new technology there was more excitement about using it rather than rather than using it judiciously you know it was like yeah. let's use all this new technology all at once it was more about showing off what you could put on a cd rather than servicing a song i think music became secondary to the product which is where blue jean comes in blue jean was a david bowie product as opposed to david bowie album Sorry, what are we talking Blue Jean? What, I mean, the song... I keep, I keep calling the album. the album Blue Jean. Do you know why? Because his face is blue on the cover. Right. Not easily to throw off the scent. <laughs> <laughs> this was Bowie in the fucking doldrums. I don't even think at the time he knew himself that he was in the doldrums. I think he just thought... He clearly didn't have that much interest in music at the time. He didn't play on the album. He wasn't that bothered no. about putting too much on the album. He was into food sculpture... Um, he was uh, hanging out with Roger Moore. Um, oh, yeah. Some... That anecdote. Extraordinary. Extraordinary <laughs> stuff. We should, you know, there's an amazing story that he tells that uh, he was in his Swiss um, chalet in, in Montreux next to a forest. Yep. Um, and he'd, he'd sent uh, Angie and Duncan packing so he'd get some writing done. And there's a knock at the door. And it's, uh, it's Roger Moore. Um, and he rocks in and he comes in and they sit down, have a lovely evening, have a few drinks. Roger is a delight. He's taking the best anecdotes you've ever heard. He's a hoot. Bowie's rolling around in front of the roasting chestnut fire. They're having a fantastic time. Evening <laughs> comes. Roger leaves. They go, let's do this again sometime. And... Uh, Leave it at that. And Bowie's going, what a lovely man. Don't think much of his films, but he's a great fella. Next day at tea time, there's a knock on the door again. Roger shows up. Hi, Roger. Come in. Sits down. Tells exactly the same stories to the word all over again. Goes home. Bowie's confused. The next day, Roger knocks on the door again, comes in, sits down, and tells the exact same anecdotes. The whole thing ends up with David Bowie hearing the door knock and hiding under his kitchen table to avoid the attentions of fucking James Bond. <laughs> Amazing. That's too weird not to be true. You know, that, 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 that stinks of veracity. 
I find that quite bad though. It's Roger Moore, and I love Roger Moore. Yeah, he's my bond. He's my silly bond. I don't like the macho tough bonds. I want the I want the skinny silver cream bond. I can't run to be an action hero. I want him to be a silly man wandering around in a blues on jacket. I just love the idea of the boy hiding behind the, the sofa. Roger yeah. Moore's ding dong. I can see you. Yeah, I can see your feet, David. I can see you under the table, David. I'll just go away then, shall I? Maybe Roger was on some kind of medication at the time. Maybe he was recovering from the, the, the grueling uh, set work on Judah Kill. Uh, you know, he might have been, you know, yeah. in a weird space. I think he'd just come off escape to Athena. So, you know, he could have, he could have caught something in Greece. You know, Oof. very hot out well, there. It's a good place as any to catch something. He may have been dreading or anticipating with dread the oncoming bullseye. With, with, <laughs> sounds like a Jim Bourne action movie. Yeah, bullseye. Oh, good. But yeah, it's a wonderful story, but it's very telling about where Bowie was in terms of his life, in terms of people he was rubbing, rubbing along with. Um, yeah. He's rich. That's the, that's the undoing of it. He's but rich also, for the first time. Let me ask you this. Do you think in Bowie's pursuit, because he, he obviously took this path, he took the AMI, record deal made Let's Dance because he wanted to be an enormous dome stadium rock star. He wanted to make a disgusting amount of money. Do you mm. think he believed he could do that and still maintain some kind of artistic credibility or integrity? Okay, do you think he made a Faustian pact for £17 million as it goes? I, 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 thought, I, I think it was another role he thought he could play. And I think yeah. it, it's the one that got away from him because he, you know, he didn't he didn't like the experience and what was expected of him and what he was supposed to do. Yeah. And actually, I think for the first time in his career, he capitulated on, on, on what was his instinctual ideas actually go along with other people's ideas. By then, the mechanism that he was involved with had grown too huge for him to actually fully He couldn't stop the machinery of it. So, of it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's very telling that apparently he was very miffed. EMI rang him at the, at the back end of the Serious Moonlight Tour and went, that was great. Now we need you to make another album within the next year. Yeah. He was uh, put out with that kind of uh, demand put upon him. And as a result, tonight was the, um, the product that he put out. But it seems to me, I don't know, as you say, he became slowly more and more disconnected. The, the more disconnected he became, the less willing he became to reconnect. He discovered yeah. other joys, food arranging. That's, yeah, start, that's when he started really getting into, into, into art and, and, and doing yeah. various different things and, and, yeah. and, and doing all that stuff because he was not engaged at all in what he was doing. You're right, it's the first time he didn't actually play a single instrument on his own yeah. record. Um, I don't think he was even there all the time for it. But there was stuff that could go on the, the, the you know, the Bramble um, yeah. Pack. The Bramble Pageant Pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the shadowy meeting at Grenada. Yeah. So it's agreed. Gentlemen, so we agree. <laughs> it's agreed. Um, We're ending on Dancing with the Big Boys. <laughs> what? No one must ever know of this meeting. I can't even say it. I can't say that out loud. Yeah. Try That's the DDW, worst people I've ever heard. DDWTBB. Does that help? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so, hey, we, we've, got, we've gone off a bit here. So, we need to move on to tonight, which is his duet. Yeah. Uh, with Tina Turner. Another Eggy. Biggie cover. Cannibalizing. It's a single, which I found out. I didn't know that. It's a single. Very it successful. Also appears, uh, over the closing credits of Jazzing with Blue Jean which we'll probably get into later on. Well, we will. That has its own special slot, I suspect. Yeah. Um, the original version of tonight has a <laughs> prologue where Iggy's desperately singing to his dying girlfriend. Yeah. 
I saw my baby. She was turning blue. Pretty soon I knew her young life was through. Boy, oh, scrapped that prologue because he said at the time, "Well, that's more Iggy's sort of world." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I kind of rearranged it to make it fit my world. And besides, I didn't want to put Tina through that. <laughs> he actually said, "That's, that's not that's not really in my vocabulary." My vocabulary. I knew he used pretty words to gloss it over, but he also said he didn't <laughs> want to put Tina through that. I'm not sure what he thought Tina would be put through. Maybe the duet would be Bowie singing, "I saw my baby." She was bellowing at Tina. She was turning blue. Tina looking perplexed next to him, waiting for her moment. I heard the Bowie version first. Then I heard the Lust for Life album. He's, yeah. just, he's going out of his way to bottlerize, streamline, and iron out anything interesting or crinkly in all of these well, songs. On the original, there is no xylophone solo. That's but which way you fall into That's yeah. a twist detriment? Are you saying? I think that's obviously to his detriment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it has a... <laughs> It has Iggy bellowing to his dying girlfriend at the start. That surely kind of makes up for it. Yeah, no. No, the original doesn't have a xylophone solo. That's what I'm saying, Joe. This one does. Yeah, but are you telling me that you like the xylophone solo? Are you saying it's to the original's detriment that it doesn't? I, I really I don't understand the miscommunication here at all. I'm, saying, I'm going to put it in very clear ways. I don't like the xylophone solo on this one. Yes, right. Now we're on the same page. Now we're on the same page. I think that was a good move not putting a xylophone solo in it. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. What I would say about this is it's it's basically Culture Club. That's what he's doing here. He's doing Culture Club. That's exactly The thing thing he's doing with uh, the duet with Tina Turner is Boy George and fucking Helen Terry just trading lines. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, astonishing. It's as vapid it's and anemic. Yeah, it's as vapid and anemic as a culture club production. Again, uh, it's not one I hate the most. You know, I I, I can put up with the reggae stuff. But have you seen? It, it I, doesn't sound like everything else in the eighties. It's a different thing. He's trying something, or Derek's trying something. Also, you know, you, you've got to look for positives here. So. Um, it's not the worst song on the record. There's a lovely Tina counter melody. Uh, their voices work really well together. We've, we're now flipping the vinyl. One second, uh, blowing the dust off. We're now, we're now flipping the vinyl uh, on Joe's uh, cassette. Fields, uh, <laughs> cassette. Neighborhood Threat. Another Iggy Pop tune. Wow, Dave. Um, but this time he's actually doing Iggy Pop. Uh, probably not for the first time again. Yeah. But um, yeah. trying to beat Iggy on this one. No, this. Uh, is it I working agree. for you, Joe? Is it working? Um, well, because I love the original so much, again, it fails in comparison. Like all Bowie's Iggy covers do, let's be honest, it's the most spirited one, I suppose. It's also the one where he's clearly in his mind anyway, because he never heard this album. I can see he was looking for this to be a big uh, stadium stomper. Guitar licks, rising chorus, etc. I, I fucking hate this. The drums are oh, living room. The guitar solo is disgusting. He's doing again the sort of nasal snide voice he did. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the histrionic. The histrionics um, are just excruciating. Great. So how is he so badly wrong on this? How is he so adrift? It's that notion of David thinking he can do it, and he's yeah. a very different animal. Yeah. Although, to be fair, Iggy Pop 
unwisely has laid claim to doing loads of stuff on this terrible record. He's going, it's not just yeah. my songs in there, not just my byline. I had a lot to do with the data. Oh, he's very, he's very pissy about that. Eggy, let it go. This is one you don't want yeah. to kind of pursue. Pick another album, yeah. Eggy. Sit what this one out, man, for God's sake. We're in the doldrums here. This is some bad. Can you imagine if Eggy was around the studio a lot of the time? I, I can't even visualize the look on his face as David butchers another <laughs> one of his songs. You know, can you imagine his face when he's uh, simpering out tonight? David, man, where's the fucking prologue? Well, that's yeah. more your thing, Eggy. I didn't, want to spook, I didn't want to spook Tina. All right, uh, <laughs> have some heroin. No, don't have heroin. I'm meant to be your sponsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing is, it, it's, it's 1984. You don't want Iggy Pop in the studio anyway. No, 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 no. no He's no. sitting there frothing lightly and flinging his poo at you. He's a madman. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, most deaf. The last man. thing you need, if you're trying to do any work. This is yeah. why this record took five weeks, because Iggy kept turning up. Yeah. Hey, man. After this, <laughs> If they did Let's Dance in three weeks, this is two weeks yeah. longer. Those two weeks are all wiggy, I reckon. Yeah. Just turning up and, you know, throwing his dinner on the floor and writing his name and poo on the windows. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's Iggy then. The, um, but no because, disrespect, sorry, Ig, he's great now. He's, a, he's an avuncular hero. Um, but, uh, wow. You don't need it, do you? So I'm, just, I'm sorry, I'm literally trying to find something. Um, well, next time, you just give me a hand signal there, Joe. Okay. Um, <laughs> Not that hand signal. I'm trying, trying to mention something. Crime, as you know. Trying to something that um, Hugh Padgett said about the sessions, because of course this was boy at the height of his uh, sanitized, uh, kind of de-queered, white heterosexual. Yeah. yeah. I'm just a bloody bloke on the pole kind of phase. Um, this, this is the event for anyone who's seen the end of Velvet Goldmine. The Velvet Goldmine. This is the end sequence. Yeah. I'm a blo- he yeah. comes out with a, a square jaw and a canary yellow suit and a, yeah, yeah. and a quiff. And it's a man's man. I'm a bloody bloke who loves bloody birds. What of it? You know? uh, he's but, got, um, got a pint in his hand. No, he's, he's, like, he's like Tony Blair coming out with a mug of coffee or something in his hand there. Listen, guys. Yeah, he's like Tony Blair with a mug of coffee and a hard on. Yeah. If you can imagine such a horrible image. <laughs> <laughs> Most terrifying thing you can imagine. There's a quote that goes, Boy was enjoying his single life at the time, trying to hook up his producers with women he'd met whilst recording. I don't want to have your reject, Padgham told him, however. They had a contretemps about it. How do you meet women in a recording studio? Oh, they were on the street. I just brought them in. Maybe Iggy was his procurer. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know how that relates. How much of this is actually... Uh... Iggy's still alive. I think he can't lie with the dead. No, I'm sure Iggy wasn't. Iggy, against all odds, he's still out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, if you're listening, Iggy, you yeah. and your parakeet are welcome on the show. Put some trousers on, mate. Come on. It's not For God's sake, man. If you're going to answer the door, at least tie the belt Bang on your guy. Your arthritic knee. <laughs> <laughs> why are you oh, yeah. Why What are those veins in your... Why are they so curly? There's like you're, a little telephone wire. You're still talking to Iggy, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah. Oh, what yeah. a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Is that when you get yep. really pumped? How uh, did you find time doing heroin to work out? It's amazing. How did that work? Also, you heroin out. Yeah, it's, as far as I can tell, it's not conducive physical activity. Quite the reverse. Which is bounty joke. So, do you reckon he was kind of uh, whacked out on smack and just lifting weights on the sofa? <laughs> you know, in a comatose state. It's laudable, of course. We have to shirt off and drop the hat still, but something about my body after a certain point, when it's buff, it's also. It, be- it becomes a relief map of all the mistakes that somebody's made in their life. I know. But to be fair to Wiggy, he's more famous than we are. 
He is. But his, his body, it's a series of Karamak socks filled with snicker balls. That's what he looks like now. He looks, well, well, you know, uh, or a condom filled with hazelnuts. Um, <laughs> Equally that, really? yes. That's all, I've checked that out. That works as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I like that, though. I, I th- one of the things I like about pop music, generally speaking, is that it's getting old. It's really old now. Yeah. Like, it started 60 years ago, and there are still people around trying to do it. You know, the Fritz is still going. You know, well, this is well, this is brilliant, sort of, well, in a way. It's weird. And I like, I like the idea of that sort of youthful pop dream aging and aging badly and getting, you know, so Iggy Pop looks amazing. He's still doing Iggy Pop, and his body is still sort of brilliant for a man of his age, yeah. but it's an old body, and it looks old, and it's... Yeah. Distended and strange, and the skin quality is different, and yeah. it should be like that. I think that's amazing. I think it's a whole new vocabulary of what you can do with rock music and pop music. Well, yeah, but I sort of love it. If you survive long enough in the music business, you become elder statesperson, don't you? I mean, a whole generation of people know Iggy, but not necessarily for his music, it's for his cultural presence. Yeah. As for his Radio 6 program, as for his... the old man on, on radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for all the myths about his drugs and... You know, curating a festival somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, he, he's reached a stage where... He's not injecting heroin into his eye. But he's reached a stage where his music's neither here nor there, unless you're a fan, of course, you know what I mean? It's like he's, he's transcended whatever it was that his yeah. kind of art used to be, which is fine by me. The fact he survived at all deserves some sort of medal, frankly. The fact yeah. he survived when Bowie didn't but is one <laughs> of the greatest ironies of our age. Boy, been clean living for decades. I mean, Iggy, by all accounts, cleaned up fairly late in life. Still buff as get out. But it's a genetic lottery, really, in a way. You still, you still have cheekbones, Joe. You, don't, you didn't earn them. <laughs> Morality or virility. You can throw that into the mix as well, if you like. I genuinely believe the better looking you are, the better Joe, person you are. So, um, um, I, dis- I disagree. Yeah. Um, although, the, the bigger your muscles are, probably all the right, nicer. Alright, okay, you're right muscling me, yeah. <laughs> All right, pretty boy, I, check out these I guns. I can't believe I have guns. <laughs> no, need, no need to have guns. You flex them at me. It's just been relentless. That's I've never seen such male posturing. Yeah, no. John, you've seen me off your territory. Uh, just, I'm just going to rip open these telephone directories. Actually, you can't do that anymore because telephone directories are about the size of a fucking B&Q pamphlet now. I thought you were going to say you can't so, do it. I thought you were going to say you can't do that anymore because political correctness gone mad. <laughs> yeah. You can't rip up a, uh, you know, Anything. But you can't rip anything up anymore. And this is Stu Francis. He's still out there ripping up tissues and you know, crushing grapes. Is he still going? God bless. Of course he is. I He's like, Stu... pop, he'll never stop. Yeah, I bet you Stu Francis is the kind of fair weather fickle fan that bought tonight. Didn't touch his 70s stuff. All over him when Let's Dance came out. Yeah, he bought it on CD. Yeah, that's exactly He's like the... Patrick fucking Bateman, isn't he? Yeah. Let Bateman love this. American Psycho is his favourite fucking Turn the album. volume up on this now. Listen to the bass on that. I went round our neighbour's house earlier because I thought his house was on fire, but he was just having a barbecue. He welcomed, <laughs> me, he welcomed me in and showed me his new speaker system. Stick a song on that, that'll knock Joe's socks off. So some came in and put on... Um, guess what song he put on? Sent by Adele. It would be perfect if it was David Bowie. It was The Chain by Fleetwood Mac. And he was like, turn that up. <laughs> so I had to Did stand awkwardly in this room. I, while his son was turning the volume up as the chain came on, and he was like, stand right there, listen to the bass on that. And I had to pretend to be impressed. And his son went, it's not even three quarters up. I can turn it up more if you want. <laughs> so um, I hardly made my excuses and left. 
But the did point he, is, did he, look, did he then look down, disappointed, and see you're such a hipster? You had no socks to knock off. He might have thought his actions had denuded me of socks. His incredible <laughs> base bins had vanquished my socks. Let's move on to tumble and twirl. <laughs> your least favourite song in the album. You got that bang wrong. Bang wrong. I thought this was your least favourite. Now, how can I put this without... I didn't like it. This is the song that most impressed me. Better than I thought it was going to be. And it's better than I remembered it. It's still terrible. You're crazy mental. I can see what he was trying to do. The boy himself said the Tumble and Twirl was one of the songs that came closest to the vision he had in his mind for this album. Christ knows what that means. More Borneo horns. The thing about Tumble and Twirl that I particularly hate is he literally keeps singing Borneo in reference to Borneo horns. Now, there's no song at the time well, that Bowie didn't. He also sings about dusky mulattoes as well. So, I oh, mean, I, that actually, it's, it's I basically up, but... a travelogue of uh, Iggy and Dave's Gogan-inspired holiday. But Tumble and Twirl, Tumble and Twirl, it's the most prominent demonstration of how awful the Borneo horns were. Do you want to explain what the Borneo horns are or were? The Borneo horns are. They were so the horn section that Nile Rogers brought in for Let's Dance. Right. They did the famous parping horn stabs in Let's Dance. Now that was fine for that song. They then became a quick fix. If a song wasn't working, stick on the Borneo horns. And that's what right. happened with tonight. Parting and farping all over this album. It's the sound of a Tony Hadley impersonator doing karaoke in an Essex wine bar. <laughs> the lyrics are bizarre and stupid. The kind yeah. of the melody is. At least I can see what he's trying to do. But on the whole, of course, it doesn't work. And it's another Iggy co-write, isn't it, of course? I don't think it is, actually. It's about That's... Iggy, but it's not, I don't think he wrote it. He might be right. I think it's a new co-write. He did two new songs with Iggy. Oh, this, right, okay. this and the last song, which we will come to. What's your take on Tumble and Twirl? I mean, I hate it. <laughs> um, I really hate it. It's, it... I, it's just... Do you hear well, more? Again today, I mean, I've been listening to this record on and off, and I, it made me off on the second side, so I can't really get through most of the songs. Um, but this sounds a lot like Leave Me Alone by Michael Jackson, but with African <laughs> guitars ever. That's a stronger, like the, like the period effort. I've done a session for Michael. Um, and it, I'd be very surprised if the bloke from um, Level 42 wasn't on this, because it's got his gaffer tape thumbs all over it. Um, it's just awful. It doesn't have a chorus. Um, it's just bits. At least it's feeling and, for and a at course. One point, Joe, at one point, yeah. he does an Ariba noise. He actually goes, Ariba! I like that bit. On a David Bowie song. But it's spunky. It's the first bit of spunk I've witnessed on the album. I don't want David Bowie's spunk on this album. Some of his pith, some of his vinegar, anything. That's a mercury move. And I don't want a mercury move on here at all. It's dreadful. I'm just reading up the song. It is a co-write with pop. With pop. Hey, Iggy, you take tumble, I'll take twirl. And that's how they wrote it. No, that does sound like their nicknames for people who's yeah. na- whose actual names they couldn't pronounce. If I just read a bit from the venerable website pushing ahead of the dame about the song. Described as a 50-50 composition between Bowie and Pop, Tumble and Twirl's lyrics owe far more to Pop. Only Iggy would have rhymed Dusky Mulatto with nylons and tattoos. Doesn't even rhyme. It doesn't even rhyme. So apparently it's about... Just my accident, says Iggy Pop. Apparently, it's about pampered Westerners in a corrupted paradise. Apparently, it's about dirty and entitled Westerners with too much money 
yeah. on holiday and, and acting as <laughs> sex tourists. Maybe this, it's about that. And John, can I just pull you up? This is also the song where indeed Mark King plays bass. Yay! There you go. Finally, enter stage I recognize the thumb. There was something about it, wasn't there? Just, it's relentless. It's, uh, you, know, you, you have to be impressed. It's a big machine of noise. But once Mark King's playing that bass and those gated drums are on it again, yeah. there's no room for fucking anything else. The only thing you can hear on top of that is the fucking Borneo horns yeah. stabbing all of you. And it's a fucking stab in my heart. Really? It's actually getting worse as it goes along. Well, you have, you say... missed Blue Jean? have you missed Blue Jean somewhere along the way? Let's just do the rest of the ones on here and then go okay. back to Blue Jean because we need to have an uplifting ending. And as John considers even further depths we've yet to plumb on the Tonight album, that we actually get round to covering tonight's only hit single, Blue Jean. We must end it there for now. Like the unwieldy, multi-tracked madness that was tonight, we too have ended up with a sprawling epic. And in an unprecedented first, like all firsts I believe are, for stalemates, we've broken this podcast into two parts. And as John suggests, at the end of part one, we do owe you an upbeat ending. So tune in to tonight part two for more stalemates agonising over David Bowie's most gated album. But for tonight, we shall love you and leave you. Oh yes, and with all the funky assuredness of a Mark King slap bass solo, the second part of Stalemates tonight will be winging its way to you within the week to worm its way into your charred little hearts. Same Stalemates time, same Stalemates place. And with that, I'm away to scar my ears out with scary monsters. Oh, super <laughs>